just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Today on CityCast Salt Lake, the resorts are open, the snow is accumulating, and our local ski towns are still trying to survive their worst instincts. The affordability crisis in the park cities of the West is reaching a real breaking point. From Airbnb saturation to nimbyism, if your whole town just becomes a resort, eventually there won't be anyone left to run it. Last year, journalist Gloria Liu wrote about the crisis in Outside Magazine. Her article was called How to Save a Ski Town. And exactly one year later, I'm asking her if any of the creative solutions she investigated are proving their might. And, of course, if she still has hope. Today's Tuesday, November 15th, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Gloria Liu, you wrote this piece called How to Save a Ski Town. And I want to get into the optimism around that. But first, the Airbnb problem is, I think, the elephant in the room across this country when we think about housing. But like Mm -hmm. for us in Utah, like, the percentage of Airbnbs in Park City, and we'll, I'll fact check myself here, but I, I think it's like 20, it's in the early 20%, which is for a small town like Park City, like if 20% of the housing market is short-term rentals, I mean, that's a chunk. Yeah, it's actually 40%. Is it? Oh <laughs> yeah, according, at least according to analysis done by the town lift, but um, that 20% figure is for Summit County as a whole. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's where I got that. Yeah, and Park City actually at 40%. Um, you know, that number is probably give or take. There's imperfections in the ability to like nail down how, exactly how many short-term rentals there are in a given place. So we'll use that as like a ballpark figure. But that makes Park City one of the mountain towns in the whole country that has the highest percentage of Airbnbs. The only other one that comes close is Breckenridge, Colorado. Their percentage is somewhere in the same range. And that's really, really high, right? That means that almost half the homes in the city don't have full-time residents in them and they're basically hotels. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's really interesting you bringing up the whole Airbnb factor because I was going to say, you know, there are these like mountain town specific factors that exacerbate the problem in these communities. And then there are like macro factors that I think are often ignored when we talk about this problem, because like a lot of people want to be, they kind of like, you know, want to be like, oh, like, well, you know, everybody wants to move to these towns to go skiing, live the dream, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But like, let's not forget, yeah, like you said, Airbnb, which was launched in 2008, but really seemed to kind of tip in 2015, 2016. In 2017, Outside Magazine ran an article titled Airbnb Killed the Mountain Town. I mean, <laughs> that was five years ago. So they were already calling it back then. And the other big thing that Airbnb did contributed to was a bigger movement, which is that real estate investing in general became like a mainstream thing to do Mm. in the 2010s. You know, Mm -hmm. like that used to be kind of a thing that only like institutional investors did or the very wealthy. um, But in part, thanks to platforms like Airbnb, which allows just like a normal person 
to basically run a small business and make rental income off a second home and other factors too, like more, just more people invest in real estate now. Like last year, 25% of all the homes sold in the U.S. were investment properties, which is like really wild. In this piece, you told the story of Crested Butte in Colorado. And I wonder like, using that as sort of an example, what is the worst case scenario here? Like, what does it look like in these ski towns when it all just comes crashing down? I guess we probably haven't seen the worst case scenario. I don't know Mm. how bad it'll get, but I think we're seeing it start to happen, which is basically that these towns are on the brink of not functioning anymore. In the early 2010s, again, like there are articles from at least ski publications saying that it's a housing crisis, but really it became national news when it started to affect the economy of these towns, right? So yeah, yeah, in Crested Butte, uh, workers couldn't afford to live in town anymore. And um, even though there were jobs, businesses couldn't hire enough people for them. So Mm -hmm. at least in Crested Butte, you know, like businesses started shutting down for entire days of the week or they went to limited hours. There were long lines outside of restaurants because there weren't enough people to serve. And so you're like actually now talking about lost revenue for local businesses, right? And then for like the state economy as a whole, at least in terms of tourism, day-to-day functioning for the people who live there. So Crested Butte started the, you know, fall 2021 school year without enough school bus drivers. People have problems hiring firefighters because they can't find housing. And so like now we're seeing the institutions that just serve the townspeople, they also can't function. So we're, we're really kind of seeing functioning grinding to a halt in these, yeah. in these towns. Well, and you noted in your piece that I thought this was like really wild, that actually the town declared a state of emergency. That was kind of what honestly caught my attention for this story was it was the first time that a municipality in Colorado, at least, had used that designation for a housing crisis. It's usually used around like natural disasters. Hmm. Um, and, and they did that because it enabled them to bypass some of the processes they normally would have had to go through to like, for example, they acquired like a hotel and turned it into some worker housing. That would have taken hmm. a lot longer if under normal circumstances. But when you're in a state of emergency, you can free up the funds to do that and get approval for that faster. Right. So yeah, that was kind of an interesting, creative way they went about it. It seems like most people agree that the crux of this crisis is housing the town's workforce, right? Like basically what we've built are cities that are almost the same as resorts. And if you work at a resort, usually you get housed, right? So what are some of the efforts or creative solutions that are popping up to solve this problem that you're seeing? Because you came at this reporting from a place of optimism. I mean, I feel like the title of the story is a little bit tongue in cheek because it boils a really complicated problem down to like, here's how you do it, you know? Mm -hmm. But I was like, really, I did come at it really hoping that I could at least name some solutions and analyze how well they seem to be working. Yeah. And so one of the most promising ones I saw was from Vail, Colorado, and it's called the Indeed program. It's their version of a deed restriction program. So what a deed restriction is, is it's a requirement written into the title of a home okay. that has some kind of requirement around who lives there. And usually it means that the people who live there have to be local workers. Hmm. Um, a lot of towns have this. This is nothing new. But the way Vail went about it was pretty innovative in, its, in terms of their simplicity. So the way it works in Vail is one of the big things is that there's no price cap in the deed restriction for what you can eventually sell the home for. So a lot of towns, like, for example, I live next door to Boulder, Colorado. They have a deed restriction program, but it says that the homeowner can't 
see more than, you know, some percentage return every year. You know, it limits the ability for the homeowner to build wealth. It makes people kind of disincentivized to do it because they're like, well, gosh, if home prices are going up 20% in a year and my house is going up 3%, like who wants that, right? Right. So the Vail program has no cap like that. You can sell your house for as much as you can down the line. But you do have to sell it to a local worker or somebody who rents to a local worker. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that sense, it does tie the value of the home to local wages, right? Because only people who can buy it are people who make wages locally. Right now in Vail and says like, hey, do you want to sell us a deed restriction on your house? We'll pay you 15 to 20% of the value of your home today for us to put a deed restriction on it, which will limit the ability for it to be sold to anybody or to any only to workers in this town forevermore. Hmm. Um, and that averaged about $69,000 a house, which is a good chunk of change, right? So you put yourself in... I'll take it. Exactly. You put yourself in the shoes of a homeowner, and today you can get $69,000, and all you have to do is promise that when you sell your house, you sell it to somebody who works there. And so, and you can sell it, you know, there's no, there's not a cap, right? I mean, you're not going to be able to sell it for as much as you could if you have, you know, cash buyers coming in from out of town yeah. who want to bid for it as a second home or you know, investment companies, but people seemed willing to do it because in part because they kind of wanted to preserve their home for a workforce. And it works really well for the town because, you know, paying that $69,000 on average was way more cost effective, they found, than building new housing. And they didn't have to go through like the approval process, which is, you know, a lot of people who may be familiar with housing know affordable housing often comes up against a lot of popular resistance in towns. Yeah. Um, Yeah. NIMBYism is a term we all know now. And the founder of the program, indeed, his name is George Ruther. He's a, he was Vail's housing director for many years. He was saying that, you know, this program is not, if not NIMBY proof, it's NIMBY resistant because we're not talking about building new homes. We're clawing back housing um, that already exists and reserving it for uh, workers. I have to imagine that this is not a perfect solution. Yeah, I mean, the one of, I mean, there's a number of, of, uh, obstacles as to why aren't we just doing this right i mean the first right. thing is like the town needs money to do this so vale happens to be a town that has a nice tax base um which ruther said is how they funded this at first they were able to pass an ordinance that raised a tax to fund this program some towns are like too small frankly to be able to afford to do something like mm-hmm. this the other thing he told me is that you know they have to target basically like smaller condos because the, the city can't afford to pay 15 to 20% of some of the homes in Vail, right? Right. So if you if there you have a town where there's not a lot of homes that are even within the price range for the city, they can't afford it, then mm-hmm. you can't buy a deed restriction back, right? Um so I mean, those are those are real limitations for for towns and uh not not every town is a Vail, Colorado. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. 
Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you want to learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, and be one in a class of 19, not 100. It seems like a slightly more common version of that program is the empty home tax, which Mm -hmm. I know they have that in British Columbia. Are there other places in the West that they have an empty home tax? So the empty home tax is this idea that you put a tax on a house that isn't lived in, um, you know, by a long-term resident. And that kind of disincentivizes people from having like a vacant home sitting there that could otherwise house a local worker. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it hasn't been a particularly popular solution um, in part because it seems kind of hard to pass. Like several cities in the U.S. have tried to pass empty home taxes and failed. The only two that had one as of my reporting about a year ago were Vancouver and uh, Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. But from an initial analysis of it, it looked like Vancouver's empty home tax paired with its pretty restrictive short-term rental regulations seemed to have an effect on getting people to return housing back to the long-term rental market. I think that Vancouver passed its empty home tax um, and short-term rental regulations in like 2016 and 2018. And then I think two years they saw a 16% increase in intended tenanted properties. And then another study said that they saw like about 9,000 condos returned to the long-term rental market. So at least Mm -hmm. for them, it appears that solutions like that have moved the needle. Yeah. So, and yeah, I mean, we just talked about the deed restriction solution, but there's a lot of other tools that cities and municipalities have for trying to increase affordable housing. I mean, besides building it themselves, there was a program in Big Sky, Montana, where they were paying second homeowners to house local workers. I mean, it was, it was adding to the local worker housing count, but I mean, obviously something like that is super expensive. I mean, the way they had it structured in Big Sky, they were paying people basically the difference between what they would make on Airbnb and what they were making renting to a local worker, was, which, as you can imagine, is going to add up in perpetuity yeah, or as long as the worker lives there, right? Well, it's interesting because it seems like these are towns that are fully acknowledging how bad their affordability crisis is. What are some of the things that are standing in the way of these efforts? The one that you pointed to in your story that I thought was the most interesting is hurt feelings, like just people getting in their feelings. Yeah, I think the best illustration of this is that empty home tax that they tried to pass in Crested Butte. 
And that was a big focus of my story was the debate around that. So town put an empty home home tax on the ballot and a lot of second homeowners obviously came to city council meetings and said they felt like they were being unfairly targeted. Uh, why can you tax one group of locals and not another? Hmm. Um, and it's interesting because second homeowners can't actually, most of them can't actually vote on it, right? Because yeah. their primary residence is not in Crested Butte. So they were essentially appealing to their fellow community members, their neighbors, um, like, hey, this isn't fair. Don't, how can you do this to us? And it was interesting because you would think that, you know, if you're a local who's just trying to scrape by and make it in Crested Butte, why wouldn't you, why would you care if, you know, people are getting taxed on their empty house, right? Like, yeah. but, you know, a lot of longtime locals stood up and defended second homeowners and spoke out against the empty home tax because they saw these people as members of their community. You know, like these are folks who have had their kids in the same summer camp as them. Their kids are in the same ski program. They come for the whole summer and they become your neighbor for the summer. So mm. yeah, like people do see a lot of second homeowners as members of their community. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about living in a small town, right? Like Crested Butte or Park City is that you have this strong sense of community, but at the same time, sometimes it can hold towns back from um, passing regulation that might contribute to helping towards the affordable housing crisis. I mean, it's not going to fix it. You know, it's like everybody I spoke to is like, hey, it's going to take a lot of different things. Um, But it's like regulate short-term rentals, um, empty home taxes, maybe, you know, passing taxes that can fund affordable housing, all of these things probably can contribute towards housing. But um, yeah, it's interesting that this, uh, this spirit of community can sometimes prevent some of these things from happening. Yeah. I wonder if the, the like sort of intersection of organizing and like community is a space where we could make a little progress in the way of nimbyism. If people feel a little bit more connected to, like they feel like they're starting to really put faces to the problem as opposed to just like, I don't want more neighbors. I don't want my view obstructed. The thing is that people in these towns do say they want to fight for affordable housing. And hmm. and it's like, it's interesting because even the folks who come to city council meetings and speak out against affordable housing projects, a really common line is like, I really care about affordable housing. This isn't the right project, hmm. you know? And it's always wrong for some reason or another, whether it's like, no, no, this, this road really cannot handle more traffic or no, there's like not enough parking spots designated for every unit. And we really, this, this is going to gum up the works downtown or um, yes, we need a housing unit like this, but not, not in this specific place, you know? <laughs> right. And it's, and, but, all these people will say, I care passionately about housing and making sure that my community members have a place to live. I think they're to be believed, but it, when the solution starts to impinge on your property, um, your property value, your ability to make a living as a property owner, if you're renting or something, suddenly it's, you know, people have a lot of personal reasons for speaking out against specific projects. Um Whereas I think that, you know, the idea that folks who work in these towns should make more money or should be able to make a living, I think that seems to be an idea that maybe people can be, it's easier for people to rally around, you know? Yeah. Um, which is interesting because they're two different sides of the same coin, right? Like mm-hmm. we have affordability, like housing prices on one end, and then we have the question of whether people can make enough money to afford housing. So yeah, I mean, I guess like at the very least, it's it's nice to see that folks can rally around that. um, And it's a little bit less maybe of a controversial topic. There are, of course, people who disagree with 
you know, unions. And um, I'm sure there's plenty of people who will say like, oh, you know, like making this much money is enough working at a resort. But mm-hmm. I do think those that is not as loud of a majority of people as the folks who come out when you're trying to build an affordable housing development in their neighborhood. Yeah. And that idea that like it's never the right time. There's always just that one thing. I mean, we see that in we see that everywhere around the affordable housing mm-hmm. debate, too. It's mm-hmm. So you said, you know, I maybe mischaracterized your optimism around your reporting, but you it seems like you came at a lot of these solutions with an open mind. You wrote this piece a year ago. How are you feeling now? How optimistic are you? Yeah, I mean, I I guess I did come at it with a, with a fundamentally optimistic um, view because I wanted, I mean, to, to even like try to explore solutions because, and what fascinated me so much about this topic was that it felt like something, a problem that seems so intractable that everybody just wanted to kind of throw their hands up and say, this is hopeless. Like, I mean, I think at, at the end of the story, by the end of my reporting, I felt, yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, I would not say I felt more hopeful. Me either. When I got to the end of like, your story, I was like, oh. Yeah, it's not a it's We're not back a happy at zoning. Ending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wouldn't say the story had a happy ending, right? No. Um, but, I mean, I think that a year later, like, I think... It's hard to say we're in a fundamentally different place. Certainly, like, we don't have the remote work problem as badly as we did a year ago, um, which is helpful. And we know that housing prices are going down in a lot of places. Whether they'll go down in ski towns remains to be seen. Hmm. Yeah, we don't have the frenzy we had a year ago. So in that sense, yes, I feel a little more hopeful. Um, But I think that what needs to happen probably is, like, we need to keep talking about it. And people need to keep pushing. Like, we can't forget that this is an issue. And like, it's interesting, you know, one of the folks I spoke to for my story was the head of the Whistler Housing Authority and Whistler houses 80% of their workforce. And when I asked her like, yeah, like what was your secret? What was like the most powerful tool in your arsenal? And she was like, honestly, like it was just us chipping away at it year after year, you know? Mm. She said it probably took about a decade of us just like building new housing, doing the deed restriction program. Um, They had this other this other tool called inclusionary zoning too that I won't get into the intricacies, but she's like, we just kind of kept chipping away at it. And I think it's like, it's a little boring. It sounds like not as exciting of an answer as pointing to like any one tool. Right. There's no magic magic ticket. Yeah. Right. But just consistency and like staying, continuing to push forward. I think that's like the greatest hope we have. Yeah. Gloria, Liu, thank you so much for your time and your reporting. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was, um, yeah, very fun conversation. And yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll keep an eye out. (laughs) In Utah, I'm left wondering if the final frontier in saving ski towns is organized labor. Last year, we watched as the Park City Professional Ski Patrol Association's showdown with Vail Resorts galvanized a lot of support for the workers on Park City Mountain. In the end, the association didn't get exactly what they wanted, but Vail did raise their minimum wage to $20 an hour. Park City Mountain just announced a quarter million dollar donation to an affordable housing project in Summit County. And Vail was the first resort to announce a $4,000 travel reimbursement for employees who might have to travel out of state to get an abortion. Now, 
I'm not here to stump for Vail, a corporation with more than $6 billion in assets, and neither are its employees. Park City Mountain lift mechanics and electricians want a union too, and they're going to take a vote on it this month on November 21st. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. If you like this show, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't like this show, well, I still hope you have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.